Welcome to Talking Humanitarianism. In this podcast, you will hear from a range of humanitarian researchers and practitioners sharing their reflections on different humanitarian issues, from conflict and disaster, migration and displacement, health and the environment, to humanitarian aid and governance. This podcast series is an initiative of the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Centre for Humanitarian Studies. The NCHS is a collaboration between the Christian Mikkelsen Institute, the Peace Research Institute Oslo and the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs and is funded by the Research Council of Norway. Hello again and welcome to this podcast episode on intersecting vulnerabilities in humanitarian disasters. My name is Ekaterina Zhukova, and I'm a researcher at Lund University in Sweden. This podcast initiative is supported by the Research Network on Humanitarian Efforts of the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. Abbreviation is NCHS. And it is co-organized together with my colleague Antonio De Lauri, uh, who is a research professor at the Christian Mikkelsen Institute in Norway and also director of NCHS. And today it's my pleasure to host Roberto Barrios, uh, who is professor of anthropology at the University of New Orleans in the United States and also Doris Samurai Stone Chair for Letting American Studies. Uh, Roberto works uh, on disaster risk reduction and recovery and he has conducted extensive fieldwork in Central America, Mexico, the Caribbean, the US Midwest, and US Gulf South. A warm welcome to you, Roberto. Thank you, Katarina. It's a pleasure to be here. So the first question I would like to ask, how have you come to study humanitarian disasters? I will start that question, answering that question by going a little bit into my own personal background. I was born in Guatemala in Central America in 1974. Mm -hmm. At that time, uh, there was no such thing as an anthropology of disasters as a neatly defined field. Mm -hmm. There were the beginnings uh, of anthropologists um, uh, thinking about the relationship between natural hazards and culture, but uh, a disaster anthropology discipline per se had not yet formed. And it's interesting that two years after I was born, there was an earthquake in that country uh, that killed about 23,000 to 25,000 people. And up to that time, disasters were seen as many of us who research disasters know, disasters were seen as unavoidable acts of nature or acts of God. And it's not until a couple of years later, as a matter of fact, uh, the, the year following the earthquake in Guatemala, that a famous article titled Taking a Naturalist the naturalness out of natural disasters by Phil O'Keefe, Ben Wisner, um, and others uh, is published, which makes the argument that disasters are by no means natural, mm -hmm. that uh, hazards alone do not make disasters. And we have to understand the political, economic, and historical context uh, in which a hazard manifests itself. And that's the, the birth of vulnerability theory. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting that um, there's the first kind of tie between me and, and, and disasters. Um, my family migrated to the United States when I was 13 years old because of political instability and a very brutal civil war that was taking place in Guatemala. And we migrated to the outskirts of New Orleans. And had it not been for that process of migration, I probably would have not become an anthropologist. 
growing up in Guatemala, I grew up with uh, what's in, comparably to what comparable to what in the United States we might call white male privilege. I was someone who was ethnicized as a Ladino, who is a person who is thought to have ancestry that's both indigenous and European, but that's primarily speaks Spanish and is considered a normative national hegemonic category. And it was an, it was the experience of migrating to the United States where people where I lost that those many of those privileges coming to be seen as a Latino as an immigrant, and you know uh, I think in the social sciences going back to John Locke's an essay concerning human understanding we understand that experience constitutes the subject, and it was the experience of myself uh, living through discrimination in second class citizenship status that I began to reflect um, on why was it that all of a sudden when these structures of social power were applied upon me of being seen as a Latino uh, and uh, sometimes being denied access to certain educational spaces or to certain social spaces. Um, why was it that now I could see uh, all these power relations in society, but when I was uh, the full beneficiary of them along lines of gender, ethnicity and race um, that I could not see them when I, when I benefited tremendously from them. And I'm not going to say that I even knew anthropology existed at the age of 13, but um, those reflections started ruminating in my head at, at that time. Um, and it wasn't also a, a direct path, but when I got to the University of New Orleans, where I now work, uh, and I went as a student, anthropology was not taught in high schools here in New Orleans. Um, very little about understanding society, uh, anything like sociology or anthropology was not taught. I had no idea that you could develop yourself to come in to understand why we create these social structures, what their histories are, and also understanding the relationship between these social structures and the, the present circumstances that we confront often of crisis, whether it be a disaster, understanding the political ecological history that created severe inequities between indigenous and Latinos and also rural poor uh, and urban populations in Guatemala that gave that disaster form and magnitude but also coming to understand the, the very social conditions that had given uh, reason or, or possibility to this violent civil war. That was the reason why my family had migrated and I had had to undergo the, the very emotionally and personally painful process of transnational migration. Uh, so when I, get to, when I got to college and I, think, and I realized that you could study this, that you could actually make a career out of it, uh, I decided to go against the will of my parents who wanted me to be an, an engineer uh, and take up social sciences. But at that time, I wasn't thinking about disasters. Um, at the time, I was still just trying to answer all these questions, try, trying to understand processes of ethnicization and also the fetishization of the other as either indigenous or minority populations. What made things like ethnocide possible? Um, and it wasn't until I got to graduate school uh, that uh, I began to get a sense of what I uh, of what I wanted to do. And I went to the, I went to graduate school at the University of Florida, where I had the fortune of meeting a professor called Alan Burns, who was an anthropologist who had been doing research with Kankawa Maya transnational migrants uh, in the United States. It was really fascinating to me uh, at the University of New Orleans. I had wonderful professors, but. Uh, Maybe they were a little bit outdated and uh, they weren't necessarily research active. Um, so they were a little bit behind the times in the literature. So I had no idea at that time uh, that there were about 40,000 indigenous Guatemalans living in South Florida um, who were actually reaching out to universities wanting research to be done amongst them. And originally I was not planning to do this work until I realized that there was a professor that did this at the University of Florida, Alan Burns. And Alan Burns approached me because they had approached him 
because uh, a community-based organization that was uh, assisting Kankobal Mayan people uh, obtain access to uh, prenatal healthcare had noticed that there were very elevated levels of neural tube birth defects. So it's interesting here because this is beginning to bring in environmental justice. Um, and there is right now a, a growing trend of disaster anthropologists uh, creating a, a connection with, with environmental justice, the work of people like Kim Fortune, for example, and many of her students at the University of California, Irvine. So at that time, I wouldn't have thought of it as a disaster uh, or as an environmental justice disaster. But uh, the, the members of this community-based organization asked my professor to please come and investigate because local health departments uh, were denying that there was a problem with neural tube birth defects. So I, um, for my master's project, I used the tools and uh, the methods of, of ethnography and, and anthropology to try to understand uh, and, and try to get a sense for, of the occupational risk hazards and the, and the life circumstances that might be putting people in positions of risk to neural tube birth defects. And I did find some really interesting things that again, I think it's gonna come back to you ask later on. I think one of the questions that, that you had in mind was about um, what does anthropology have to contribute to the ethnography of humanitarianism in, in, or to the, or what does anthropology have to contribute to the study of humanitarianism in, in the same way uh, that ethnographic study uh, often lets us discover things that, that otherwise cannot be known, uh, especially concerning conditions of knowledge making. If, if there are certain knowledge making mechanisms of a local public health department that is silencing certain voices or that in, in their epidemiological statistical calculations completely begin to um, make a, an epidemic condition disappear, uh, ethnographic methods can be really good at detecting those things that other systems of knowing uh, do not or bypass or the voices that they silence. So uh, that, that was that work. And then for my dissertation research for my PhD, I, I was really interested in doing a comparative study. Although my work was on medical anthropology and, and, and how the methods of anthropology let me recognize that you, the local public health department uh, was very quick to dismiss that there was a problem. And that's partly, I think this, this needs to be thought of in terms of the broader political economic situation that people were in, transnational migrants, particularly refugees, or people who don't have a formalized immigration status with US authorities um, are considered quite expendable. Uh, and they are a, a lucrative source of labor for commercial agriculture and, and such companies in the United States. Uh, but they're often seen as people who do not have rights uh, in this country, even when they actually do have those rights, especially in the disaster context. That's something that I'm doing right now that maybe you can talk about later. Um, so it, it seemed to me that the local health, public health department was eager to dismiss, especially because this community-based organization had suggested that perhaps there could be some kind of uh, teratogenic birth defect causing property of pesticides that people may be exposed to. And one of the things that I found by actually going out and interviewing people and talking to people and finding out about their labor conditions, their lives, was that there were plenty of, of possible risk factors uh, that, that could have been putting people at risk. The local public health department wanted to make the case that the neural tube birth defects were occurring because the, the mothers of the children had not had proper nutrition and folic acid supplementation. And I'm not saying that that couldn't have been a possible cause. Uh, it, was, it was one potential one, but it had not been proven that that was the cause. But what I also found was that by doing the ethnography, I found that there were a, a collection of other occupational risk hazards that, that could have also been causing the birth defects. For example, um, in Scandinavian countries, I came to learn by doing the, medical, the research at the medical libraries, although I'm not a physician, in Scandinavian countries, women are advised to not go into saunas during the early stages of gestation because an increased body temp core body temperature might create defects in the way that a neural tube falls over and forms the spinal cord of, an, of a fetus. 
And come to find out the women who had had these children were working in greenhouses in the middle of the Florida summer in the Florida heat, temp reaching temperatures of over 120 degrees, uh, temperatures that were comparable if not surpassing nor Northern European sauna. So again, those kinds of interesting details and in, in, uh, uh, that, that local public health department officials were not bothering uh, to, to engage in, in documenting, uh, you know, made the, the work that I did, I think particularly, not just, not just the work that I did, but highlighted the importance of an ethnographic methodology of going, reaching out to people, documenting their life experiences. Anyway, coming off, uh, coming through for my dissertation, I got really interested in going beyond medical anthropology. I, I got very much interested in the fact that we had here um, a, a, what was developing into a second generation of Kankaba Mayan uh, adolescents and a whole generation of Kankaba Mayan people being born and raised in the United States. And there were also many people from the same communities that they had uh, migrated, had fled for their lives during the violence of the civil war in the 1980s, who had settled in refugee camps in Mexico. And again, this is also a humanitarian disaster in a way. And one of the things that was really interesting was that the refugee camps, refugee camps are notorious uh, for not becoming places that are highly hospitable. The refugees are often people that are themselves highly stigmatized. So the idea of host governments is that they don't want to make conditions so pleasant that people will stay there long-term. So people are kept in a, in a bare minimal ex, ex, existence. And it becomes somewhat of a contradictory situation because then that gives many refugees or people who are fleeing for their lives, many reasons to not even want to become officially recognized as refugees. So that they will not, be, uh, because the, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and the Mexican Commission to Aid Refugees, the Comar, re required people to actually live in refugee camps and then to become fully dependent upon uh, this, uh, upon food aid, for example, and governmental aid and, um, and UN aid to be officially recognized as a refugee. And then in those instances, uh, people would not be allowed to officially work for a living, uh, to own property. And keep in mind, we were, this was, I was doing this research in 1996, it was 15 years people had been living in these camps, a whole generation of children had come up. So I was really interested in, in doing a comparative study, looking at how uh, how did the, the, the conditions of policy towards refugees uh, and towards immigrants in the U.S. Had, had shaped or affected the varying experiences of Kankaba Maya um, transnational migrants and refugees? In what ways had also these populations developed mechanisms for attempting to create a sense of cultural continuity, but also what kinds of cultural changes were people were experiencing as they were being exposed to different cultural contexts? Mm -hmm. And that was my dream in 1998. Um, I did a pilot study uh, in Chiapas, uh, looking, visiting refugee camps and interviewing people. I was supposed to have an internship with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees that was going to be set up by uh, Alan Burns and one of his former Master of Arts students, Liz Jorgsen, uh, who's an amazing person who used to work for UNHCR. But unfortunately, uh, the Mexican government was using the classic tactic of divide and conquer. They were pitting Kankawa Maya refugees uh, against Zapatista um, uprise mo uh, movement uh, communities uh, mm -hmm. to use tensions between indigenous communities as an excuse to come in and dismantle Zapatista autonomous communities. Mm -hmm. So things got really tense and UNHCR uh, withdrew their offer for me to have a, what do you call these things? An, an, not, a, not an assistantship, but an internship. Mm -hmm. um, and my committee got very much concerned that um, Chiapas could become another bloodbath like Guatemala. So I was strongly encouraged by my 
PhD advisor and other members of my community, committee to find another research project, which was devastating because as a grad student, I had invested tremendously in this project. I was emotionally, personally committed to it. Um, but it was at that same year that uh, a hurricane by the name of Mitch made its way through the Caribbean. It eventually impacted Central America. It sat off the coast of Honduras for three days and dumped a deluge of precipitation that coincided with 500 years of um, environmentally unsustainable land tenure practices, tremendous inequities in land access, uh, an absence of any urban planning uh, that would have made sure to mitigate the potential flood for flood disasters and, and landslide disasters. And so of course, the, all of the elements of the disaster had already been put in place over 500 years. All you had to do was add water. And when that occurred, there I also had the fortune uh, that at the University of Florida, there was a professor by the name of Anthony Albert Smith, who is often credited with uh, being one of the people who introduced disaster anthropology to the United States. He and Susanna Hoffman uh, through their edited volume, The Angry Earth, Disaster and Anthropological Perspective. And Anthony Albert Smith and another uh, professor, uh, James B. Stansbury, got together and said, well, you know, we, we do this, this, all this research on disasters. James P. Stanford had experience working in Honduras with Billy and Kathleen DeWalt. And they decided let's put together uh, an application for a pilot project and let's use anthropometry. Let's use the measures of children's bodies uh, to try to use them as a proxy of community health because ch children under five years of age, their bodies, whether it's their weight for their height or their height for their age are really sensitive indicators of, of general biological community health. So uh, they needed a graduate student to go and collect uh, 300 measures of children under five years of age in hurricane affected areas of Honduras. And given that I was somewhat orphaned from my PhD project, um, I thought, well, although I was previously working with a population that was displaced uh, because of a complex political situation and a civil war, uh, here might be an, op an opportunity to also work on issues of displacement, but for perhaps somewhat different reasons. Um, and so I, I volunteered to go and I was chosen to go. And so I, I went there to Honduras and I uh, coordinated with Marcos Julio Medina, who was the um, director of medical investigations at the teaching hospital of Honduras. And he uh, allowed us to work in collaboration with his nurse, uh, Rosa Palencia. And together we coordinated to go to three hurricane affected areas in the South Choloteca in Tegucigalpa and Catacamas and find disaster affected communities and take a sample of children, of 100 children in each one of those sites under five years of age to get a sense of um, what community health status was like. And I came back with that data and then we uh, analyzed it and something that was really interesting was that uh, in one of the sites that I had gone to in Southern Honduras, uh, a, a city called Choluteca, um, you know, we use the word city in, in Honduras, uh, the Honduran census would have called Choloteca a medium-sized city. It was a, it was a settlement of about uh, 70,000 people in the city, in the urban area itself, about 120,000 people in the municipality. And I had collected the growth measures from children of families whose homes had been destroyed by the flood and who had been relocated to a site about seven kilometers outside of the city. And uh, when, I, when we came back and analyzed that data, those children had extremely high levels of um, acute, acute malnutrition of low uh, weight for height, showing that they were experiencing all kinds of gastrointestinal disease. So I, I, we took the data and we applied for more funding for the National Science Foundation, James P. Stansbury and Anthony Oliver Smith, and they proposed to expand the methodology that we had, that, that we would 
uh, return a year later uh, to the three sites that I had visited, but we would stay for longer. Um, and we would have a more extensive a nutritional survey to try to find out you know, what people's micro, micro and macronutrient intake was to measure a child and uh, in a, in a caretaker in the household to look at their bodily dimensions and their anthropometry and do analysis of malnutrition. Um, and I applied also for a Fulbright grant and I, I received it. So I returned with enough funding to be there for 13 months. So that's a long answer perhaps to a simple question, how did I become involved? But, but I think that sets up uh, some really important things, particularly the methodology that we started with, that, that this project started with a methodology that was quite um, scientific, uh, you could say, um, using in biological, biological anthropology focused, uh, anthropometry, uh, nutritional epidemiology. But as we'll see, the and when, when we start talking about what my findings were, uh, the, the heart of my dissertation ended up being about very different kind of data. But I'll just leave it at that for the intro. <laughs> that is quite an impressive story, I must say, both on a personal level and on professional level. And before I would ask you about what actually you have found out, I would like to ask you, what kind of anthropologist do you think your experience have made you? Because you have such... Um, a complex personal experience because you have experienced disaster firsthand. You mm -hmm. have experienced migration firsthand. So what kind of anthropologist do you think it has made you by experiencing this yourself and then seeing how other people experience it, uh, experiencing it and going in the field? What do you think you can see that maybe other people who were born in the US and uh, not experienced, uh, you know, a very... Uh, uh, tragic uh, events they might miss. So that's the first, the personal, what role the personal plays in how you do research. And then what have you learned also on the way? What have you learned? What kind of anthropologist you have also become in addition to your personal experience? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think that the kind of anthropologist that I am, I, I would like to use the word public or engaged anthropologist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you know, it's, it's interesting um, because giving more detail here, mm -hmm. Guatemala has for a long time been a place where European and North American anthropologists make lifelong careers. Mm -hmm. uh, Soul Tax from the University of Chicago, uh, Dennis and Barbara Tedlock, uh, really famous anthropologists have done a lot of work, particularly with indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that despite the fact that Guatemala, especially because of its indigenous uh, and cultural diversity, mm -hmm. there's 22 different Maya languages that are spoken in the region, over half the population. Uh, it's a first language Mayan speaker in, and therefore also Mayan in identity. Mm -hmm. And yet the, the country in the 1970s did not have even a, a university program that gave a bachelor's in anthropology. So, I have now, we talk about different kinds of justice. We talk about environmental justice, racial justice. And I think it's also important to begin to talk about academic justice, the inequitable development of academia in different parts of the world. And, and, it's, and also, and I think particularly for anthropology, the extractive nature of some of the processes of knowledge making that people take, take and take. We come and collect data, we make great careers out of it. Um, and it, what do we give back to the communities that we work in? Mm -hmm. So, 
In Guatemala in the 1970s, uh, it was actually students from the Department of History from San Carlos University, the public university, that began to make a movement and to advocate for the formation of the country's first degree granting program in anthropology. There were Guatemalan anthropologists who had studied at the University of Chicago, whistle tax, for example, mm-hmm. but there was no degree granting program in Guatemala. And the first generation, so right when this earthquake hit, um, the first generation of Guatemalan anthropologists was coming into its own. And that first generation was only five students. Mm-hmm. And those students, some of them were already very much concerned with the conditions of entrenched inequity, uh, corruption, uh, violence, marginalization in the country. And the earthquake, you know, people have sometimes called the earthquake in Guatemala a class quake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and have also, some people have suggested that there may have been important links there also between the earthquake and the escalation of the civil conflict. Mm-hmm. And three of these students became very much involved uh, in the disa- documenting the disaster process in facilitating aid delivery, but also continue to further radicalize. And uh, three of the, those, those three students, three of the five students were brutally massacred uh, by uh, Guatemalan security forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of them were women, one of them was a man. Um, and the other two uh, left the country ex- in self-exile to avoid being murdered. So all of a sudden Guatemala lost its first generation of anthropologists. But what's even most interesting is that unwittingly Guatemala's first generation of anthropologists may have also been, could have also been the first generation of disaster anthropologists. Today, the names of these students uh, of anthropology are, are hardly known uh, in the North American Academy. Um, but they could have been the first, but they were assassinated, brutally assassinated. So when I was uh, studying my undergraduate in, in the University of New Orleans, I, I you know, well, I, I guess all of those personal experiences, my, my own personal experience of, of coming to know, coming to be able to recognize that there were these power relations in society of gender, and these power structures of gender, class, and ethnicity, uh, and although visually invisible at times, although there are quite symbolic ways in which people met, you know, create uh, these structures, but also how sometimes, although they're, they're in plain sight, we also refuse to see them and acknowledge them. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, in, in a way, and I think we see it right now in the, in the discussions that we're having in the United States about race and racism, right? That, um, that of course, when, when we are racist and classist and sexist, we can do things that are tremendously traumatic to the people that we enact those power structures upon. Mm-hmm. But it can be equally traumatic to us to recognize when we have been perpetrators. And I think it's a great refusal on the part of many people in the United States to come to terms because how, how traumatic it is to recognize that you are a part of the perpetrating class. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that, that was part of my own process of, you know, I, I, one of the things I think that occurred to me over the process of migration um, was that a lot of the cultural constructs and discourses that, that, com- that come to shape our realities uh, began to fracture. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be very harrowing for people. Uh, you know, we see in the United States, for example, in the United States, some people say, well, we, we can't possibly let gay people get married because if gay people get married and there's no rules, right? Again, people are very much afraid that, that the, the cultural moorings that they have their society might become unhinged and then there might be complete chaos. And um, so that can be quite frightening. But one of the things that happened to me, I think anthropology, and I think that's why I think anthropology is so important because anthropology became the mechanism through which I could deal with the terror 
that comes when your own cultural models begin to fall apart. Uh, and anthropology became not just a, I mean, for me, anthropology was more a life quest than a career. And it was, uh, for me, anthropology provided the means of developing my own ethical self-formation of, of figuring out, okay, so if, if my ethnocentric Latino identity and sexism are deeply problematic and are part of the reason why I had to leave my country, how else should I be in the world? And those are questions of ethics. And I think anthropology provides tools. Uh, you know, often we hear an election year in the United States and people love to say things like, think for yourself, think outside the box. Um, but then uh, it, you realize that, that it's easier said than done to think for yourself. What does it mean to think for yourself? What does it mean to think? What, what, is, the, what is the history through which we have come to think, uh, right? Which is itself its own cultural box. And, and I think this will relate to this, the study of, of disasters because a lot of what I think is important that anthropology brings to the study of humanitarian disasters is that anthropology is a discipline that is all about documenting people's boxes, right? People's cosmologies, people's epistemologies. In and, and if you're a good anthropologist, not all anthropologists do this, but if you're a good anthropologist, you recognize that you yourself are within your own box, right? Um, and, and, and so anthropology proved to be an incredibly resourceful and powerful uh, discipline to begin to figure this out, right? And, and to give you the tools for trying to, to formulate your own ways of being ethical. Mm -hmm. So I think questions of ethics, questions of justice, um, uh, dealing with my own trauma, again, not just of being discriminated, but also having been a discriminator mm -hmm. uh, are extremely powerful motivators for doing the kind of public you want, if you want to call it justice, but publicly engaged uh, in advocacy type of anthropology that I do. You know, before I go into the question of the findings that we have left, I just want to make a comment because I, I was really impressed when you said that actually, where does the disaster anthropology start? So I had an idea and just, just uh, this is just an idea and you don't have to do it absolutely. To write uh, something about where does the disaster anthropology starts. It actually starts in Guatemala and maybe document the experience of the students and also question of questioning that everything starts in US or everything starts in the universities of the privileged part of the world, but does it really? So I really appreciate this uh, experience that you have just brought. So now, yes. as I promised, I would like to go back to the findings. Okay. When you came back, from collecting the data, the data also in, you know, we have, we can talk about it. What actually have you realized? How, how I, um, can, you can you repeat the last part? How I actually, what I- What have you realized? Or what have made you think that this is not what I actually see, what I intended to see? Yes. Um, you know, one of the things I think that happened was that as a, as a graduate student, I was, um, given that, you know, my, my father was a Jesuit seminary student, so he had training of higher education, but it was mostly theology, so he had never really had the experience of being a student in a, in a university. Uh, so, it, it, although my father ha did have a degree, uh, a bachelor's in philosophy that he earned by being a Jesuit, he had never really had a college experience, much less in the United States, or at least a traditional one, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and my mother uh, had studied to be a teacher in Guatemala, but that uh, doesn't necessarily require a, a college degree. So to a certain extent, I was a first generation college student. And I was, I think, pretty disempowered. Um, and I didn't know, sometimes you get a feeling in your gut and you think, uh, 
you have a hunch about something, but you don't yet have the words or the ways of problematizing it. And I have to be very, I have to be careful here. I have to give, you know, I certainly acknowledge that, that there were wonderful faculty at the University of Florida that were instrumental uh, in me becoming a professional anthropologist. But the University of Florida Anthropology Department, I think, was also very problematic in some ways. There were some very positivist anthropologists um, who upheld a particular idea of a very scientific study uh, of, of people and culture that, to a certain extent, became about not, under, about not recognizing that, that our own instruments, our own methods are a part of a box. And, and I think nutritional epidemiology and, you know, it, for, they are powerful in, in some ways, but you also have to understand that the categories of, of nutritional epidemiology and their methods also have a cultural history and are by no means fully objective. It is one, one specific way of documenting the world and speaking about it. But I was very disempowered as a student and there wasn't much room for a critical conversation uh, in, in anthropology at, at UF in those days was quite positive. It's, it's, you know, I think Tony Oliver Smith and Alan Burns were, 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 were a few of the people who, um, who in that department um, allowed other kinds of concerns or questions or, or lines of inquiry. Uh, but, but, but otherwise, uh, it was a pretty positive and scientifically driven department. And so the, the, the realization that I had occurred in the field. It occurred before I even got back. Um, one of the things that happened that I didn't mention before, because it's a very long story, and you know, and I have all day if you want to talk, I know, <laughs> but I know that your program can't go on forever. But one of the things that I noticed when I was doing my field work was that uh, the first year that I arrived in San Honduras in Chiloteca, uh, and I went to the local public health department to ask where Rosa Palencia and I could find disaster-affected families to measure their children, Mm-hmm. They, they're the ones who referred to me to the, what, what eventually became the largest housing reconstruction site in Southern Honduras, mm-hmm. which is called by many names. Some people call it Limón de la Cerca, some people call it Ciudad Naciones Unidas. Mm-hmm. And when I, uh, when I arrived there, I noticed that in the, there was an area that was the main settlement about seven kilometers away from the city, mm-hmm. where eventually it ended up being that there were about 900 families that lived there. Mm-hmm. And I also noticed that across the, the, the road, the, the, these, these relocation sites were located along the Pan American Highway, which is this highway that connects the United States to South America. Mm-hmm. And across the road, not too far, maybe 200 meters on the road was another community. There was a somewhat smaller population, uh, maybe about 600 households. And in that first year that I arrived, which would have been, uh, if I'm not mistaken, 1999, yeah, summer 1999, the hurricane hits in late October, 1998. So I got there in summer 1999 to take those measures. Um, there, was a, there was another group of, of disaster displaced people. Now, conditions were harsh. Uh, in Limón de la Seca, even though uh, the, the International Migration Organization had provided temporary shelters for people to live in, and even though uh, the construction of permanent housing was visible, uh, conditions were still difficult. Uh, it was the rainy season. There was malaria and hemorrhagic dengue. Uh, people were getting sick, uh, you know, and again, that's why we got children with extremely low uh, weight for height measures. And again, I'm not saying that nutritional epidemiology doesn't have certain merits, but again, the question is, um, what does it mean to think in a distinctly anthropological way about, about community recovery? I have nothing against nutritional epidemiology. I have nothing against epidemiology in general as its own discipline, right? The, the, the challenge for me then became, what does it mean to think anthropologically about this? Mm-hmm. Uh, that literature epidemiology did not provide me with the tools for thinking about that. And what I wanted to think about was the fact that uh, across that, that other community, although things were bad in Limón de la Cerca and the other community, Marcelino Champagnat, things seemed even more dire. 
people were not even living in temporary shelters. People were living in cloth tents uh, in the middle of a, a muddy mess that the landscape had become. And again, hemorrhagic dengue and malaria. I had a feeling those people would not survive. I, 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 I had a feeling that those people would be gone by the time that I returned a year later. When I returned a year later, when we returned with the full armor of all these methods, all these scientific ways of knowing people, documenting their bodies and their, and their um, diets, the reverse situation was present. The community that I thought was going to die, uh, not make it, was thriving. Um, it had the, the largest electrification project uh, or the most effective electric public lighting project in Southern Honduras. People had been given houses that had internal partitions that were relatively spacious. Uh, those houses were located within land parcels that were sufficiently large for people who practice small animal husbandry in house gardening and horticulture. That was incredibly important for household economics uh, and, and, and nutrition and diet. Also, there were signs that the social organization in the community was working much better. Uh, one of the most prominent emerging social organization in the aftermath of the disaster in these two communities were adolescent street gangs, the Maras, the Mara 18 and Mara Salvatrucha. Mm -hmm. In, in, in Marcelino Champ Champagnat, the community that was doing much better now, um, there were street gang members, but the street gang members did not have complete impunity. Uh, they were monitored, they were subjected to searches by elders within the community. Elders within the community had organized uh, attempting to keep the violence within the community in check, and they were doing a pretty good job. And one of those indicators was the fact that although there were street gang members who lived within the community, there was no street gang graffiti anywhere uh, in the community to be seen, only gang members themselves. In Limón de la Cerca, the condition was the complete opposite. 1,200 homes, 1,200 structures, housing structures, I won't call them homes, have been constructed by a variety of different international NGOs. The principal one who had built homes was called Samaritan's Purse, which is an uh, evangelical uh, non-governmental organization funded by uh, Franklin Graham, uh, who, by the way, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, said that Hurricane Katrina was a punishment from God because of all the sexual license and homosexuality in the city of New Orleans. Right? And the executive director uh, in the country of Samaritan's Purse was Deborah DeMoss. Deborah DeMoss, who was given the nickname Death Squad Debbie uh, by the LA Times, because she was, a, she was in, the foreign, in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and assistant to Jesse Helms, ultra right-wing conservative, and was credited with being one of the key architects of the Death Squad system in Honduras during the 1980s to repress um, leftist movements and civil society organizers. Mm. She was a director of the NGO. <laughs> And her husband was a right-wing military officer, uh, mm -hmm. Rene Fonseca. Mm -hmm. So uh, good company here. Of the 1,200 homes that have been constructed, 300 remain vacant. Uh, people would rather not live in those homes or they weren't homes, those structures. Um, the structures were falling apart. The, the, the environmental conditions of the site were, were such that uh, there were very high speed winds uh, in this semi-arid plain. Mm -hmm. and the roofs of the structures have not been properly attached. Choluteca is very hot and people have the custom of sleeping in hammocks mm -hmm. uh, and they often tie their hammocks to the support beams of the roofs. The roofs are being blown off, taking children, infants and adults with them in hammocks and killing them. Mm -hmm. So the, the narrative that came from the residents is that more people were dying as a result of the housing aid than because of the hurricane itself, at least in this particular part of, of Honduras. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, there were multiple issues with the housing design that showed that they were grossly socially and environmentally inadequate and structurally inadequate. The houses did not have proper supporting columns. Again, the, the houses were falling apart. Um, the houses were single room structures that were about 300 square feet or about 25 square meters in size in their, in their interior. Uh, which is not very big considering that the survey that I did, I, I, I did do the epidemiological survey, uh, nonetheless, that I had proposed to do for the National Science Foundation for Fulbright. Mm -hmm. And out of 110 households in the community that I, that I sampled, uh, randomly sampled from the community, uh, the, the median household size was seven people. So at least 50% of the households had seven people or more living within them. Mm -hmm. Some of the households reported having as many as 12 members who would sleep there, but not necessarily be able to spend the day. So grossly inadequate. Um, the, the land parcels that the houses were located in were too small to allow for animal husbandry or for uh, uh, smaller gardens, but, but certainly no animal husbandry. As a matter of fact, animal husbandry was forbidden by the municipality uh, because of the concern for sanitary conditions. So, so families were extremely crippled economically and nutritionally by that. And most importantly, the street gang phenomenon was completely out of control. There was street gang graffiti all over the community um, and it was not uncommon for there to be violent acts. While I was there, there were murders. Uh, the teenagers were killing each other who had joined uh, rival street gangs. And, and local police department estimated uh, a 500% growth in street gang membership in the aftermath of the disaster. And I suspect that there were serious issues of post-traumatic stress amongst these teenagers had not been properly dealt with. Um, and that in along, along the, the, not only the trauma of the hurricane, but a trauma of being a, a working poor uh, at young adult in a society that offers very few mechanisms for upward social mobility. Um, it's that compounded trauma that I think was, the, the street gangs became very attractive for, for, for adolescents who feel like there were no mechanisms for them to get ahead in life. And, and I think those are the same mechanisms that are driving people to migrate to the United States now. Um, so, so it was night and day difference between the two communities. So then that became a, a pressing question of mine. Why, 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 how, how did these two communities flip and why? Mm -hmm. So one of the things, of course, I, I had committed to carry out my methodology and I still did it. I conducted, you know, some people today because I don't, I no longer do this epi nutritional epidemiology. I think my work is not scientific or rigorous. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I did more surveys than any of them ever did for their dissertations. I, I walked to 230 households, randomly selected, uh, sampled from both the Monte de la Cerca and Marcelo Champagnat and uh, the neighborhoods where they had been displaced from for the people who still live there to have a comparative framework. And I conducted these surveys. And not only did I conduct my service in my own in my own research site, uh, it, those 230 surveys, um, it was three of us grad students working in Honduras. Uh, the, our my fellow graduate student uh, Jose Antonio Tovar, who was doing the surveys in Tegucigalpa, mm -hmm. got shot in the neck one month into field work. So I volunteered to go back to Tegucigalpa and finish his surveys for him. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, we had also uh, made a, a, a quick note in the, in the proposals that, uh, of research that we would also do ethnographic work, but never was it specified what the ethnographic work would be about. It was almost like an aside. Uh, all the, the full methodology of the project was, was focused around this nutritional epidemiology. Mm -hmm. But I just fell back on my ethnographic field notes courses and so uh, field work courses, and I devised uh, a, 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 
a, a, a protocol uh, for informed consent uh, and also for uh, a semi uh, of, a, of a structured ethnographic interview. Mm -hmm. And I selected sub-samples of my larger samples of households to go and sit down and have more detailed conversations. And one of, and one of the things that happened is that I, I also wanted to be very careful not to ask leading questions or to, you know, of course it's really, you, you always in one way or another affect the data. Uh, we are the instrument as anthropologists, uh, but it was really interesting that it was residents themselves who volunteered a comparison between the two sites. So I wanted to uh, ask people, well, first I wanted people to speak in their own voice. Um, I, I wanted people to tell me, to make their own assessment uh, of how their lives had changed uh, in the aftermath of the disaster and what role the, the disaster aid had played in those changes. And of course, the responses of people living in Limon Seca were overwhelmingly negative. Uh, people spoke about terror uh, of living in a space that, you know, how Mar Marcelo Champagnat had this wonderful electric electrification project. Limon de la Seca, um, even though the two of foreign government had paid for the electrification project and the residents of the community had done the work of putting in the light posts, the local mayor was uh, being vindictive towards them because they had publicly embarrassed him because of his poor performance. Uh, they had protested his poor performance and the sluggishness of his municipality uh, in responding to the disaster. So he refused to sign the paper that would, uh, that would exempt um, the, the electric company from having to pay a tax for use of public waste, which was part of the bilateral agreement that the residents would put into labor for the project. The foreign government would pay for the materials for the electrification and all the local municipality had to do was sign a waiver of a tax and he refused it. For the entire year that I, that I researched, that I, that I was there for the 13 months that I was there, that community lived under conditions of darkness that was completely exacerbating, right? So completely uh, arbitrary uh, situation here. So, so residents themselves were offering th this example of look at how well people are doing in that community and, and look at how we're doing here. So I got very much interested in asking people to tell me why they hypothesized that the two communities were so different. And I decided to ask that question, not just of disaster survivors, but also of uh, local government officials, NGO program managers, et cetera. So when I started asking that question, for example, to the Samaritan's Purse project manager in, in Limon de la Seca, I asked him, why do you think these two communities are so different? Uh, this this, person, this pro pro project manager from Samaritan's Purse said, well, you know, these people were already marginal before the disaster, right? Uh, so they were marginal people. So, you know, they, they, they have, they're, they're dependent. You know, they want everything to be given to them. They want everything to be easy. And so, you know, they were already like this. And I said, well, what about Marcelino Champagne? Why do you think things are so different there? And then the narrative was, well, those people came from rural communities and they already came with a history of social organizing. So they already had all these social structures uh, built within them and the, the spirit of, of, of communal organization. So that's why they're better. Um, what was really interesting is that, and this is why ethnographic data, ethnographic knowledge making is important because I was actually going and interviewing people. So in, in spite of the interviews that I did, I, I asked people, where did you live before the storm? And where did you live before you lived there? Mm -hmm. So I, I could actually name and pinpoint the neighborhoods and parts of the region that people had come from. When I did an analysis of my surveys in Marcino Champagnat and Limona Seca, it turned out there were no actual statistical differences in the places of provenance of people. Mm -hmm. it, it turned out that people came from roughly, there were people from rural areas in both communities in, in roughly the same percentage 
Uh, and there were people from in, in, a, in a similar percentage from the urban areas of Choloteca. And it, it turned out that, that they, so, so, so that hypothesis completely fell apart. So my next question then became to elicit people's micro histories of why they thought the communities were so different. And a narrative that began to emerge was really interesting. And, and again, as an anthropologist, I'm trying to get this perspective from as many people as possible to not just take one person's word for it, but also to, to, to supplement the interviews with observations, participant observation, for example, and also collecting documents, document collection. And the, the narrative that emerged from this, which is I think what you're after as an anthropologist, you're after a narrative. Um, the, the, the collective narrative that emerged was that in fact, uh, these two communities had not been two communities uh, before, you know, when the disaster occurred. When the disaster occurred, the people of these two communities came from roughly 22 different neighborhoods and outlying rural areas of the region. The people who came from the, the urban neighborhoods of Chiloteca, from these 22 different flooded neighborhoods, uh, all coalesced and went to live in temporary shelters. The temporary shelters that were available at the time were um, schools and gymnasiums. And the, the disaster occurred in October. The school year in, in Central America is different. I think it, you get Christmas off, like, like in the United States, we have summer, right? But, but we, we get winter off in Central America, right? So, 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 her, so Mitch, uh, coincided with the end of the school year and local schools didn't mind the, the, the displaced families being in their grounds but when January came around pressure began to build up there was a need to return to normal and they had to reopen the schools and there was pressure put on the disaster survivors to vacate. Now the, the, the disaster survivors in their own community in their own neighborhoods already had pre-existing systems of, commu of, com of community organization or neighborhood association organization so there were already local leaders local leadership um, so you went from 22 different neighborhoods i don't know if you could call them communities per se there would have been communities within these neighborhoods but a collect a, a diversity of communities has a shared experience of disaster and displacement <coughs> that coalesces a new broader community. So, so the community is coming into being, which is one of the important things that I think is important that I've observed from disasters, right? That the disasters are also community making moments or moments of community emergence. Or, you know. So one, there, all of a sudden there is this coalescence and, this, and the most proactive leaders from various of these neighborhoods rallied around a religious brother from the Marist Brotherhood and formed uh, a, a, a very dynamic and very proactive uh, nucleus of organizers for, the, for disaster displaced. And they began to put pressure on local government because of course disasters often overwhelm governments and governments in Central America are notoriously uh, inefficient, <laughs> corrupt. Um, so they began to put pressure on local government to expedite the process of representation for disaster survivors to purchase lands, to find a permanent solution to the displacement process. Of course, uh, there's a, for, for, since the colonial era, government in Central America is not for the good of the people, it's for benefit of people in positions of political power. That's one of the legacies of colonialism. Um, so one of the things that begins to happen is that the disaster becomes a very liminal moment for governmental officials, in, in the, in the, particularly because the existing structures of political culture begin to be disrupted. People begin to protest, people begin to push back. Mm -hmm. And the disaster survivors became very proactive. They 
they moved in mass out of the, the shelters they, and they found a particular space seven kilometers away from the city where they felt that they could buy the land that would allow them to have ample enough land parcels for animal husbandry, for horticulture, for households. Mm -hmm. But they still needed local, local government to uh, intervene for them or to represent them in the purchasing of the lot. Um, in January of 1999, uh, these assessor survivors staged a, 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 small, a, a limited land invasion. They didn't want to just take the land from the bank that owned it. They wanted to buy it legally, but they also wanted to put pressure on government. So they agreed to only populate the areas along the highway. And tragedy struck again, unfortunately, because of the delays of local government, a young girl was struck and killed uh, by a car. Um, and that was a catalyst uh, on the building frustrations of disaster survivors. And so the leadership went and protested. The response of local government was to deploy local police department and to arrest the most proactive disaster survivor leaders um, and put them in jail. And from then on, the local government, because when it realized the, the politically volatile situation that it was confronting, decided to uh, intervene in the purchase, but they, they, they conducted the purchase of the land behind closed doors, never told the disaster survivors how much was actually paid for the land and decided to begin to counteract all of the policies that uh, disaster survivor leadership had in mind for how to rebuild the community. They, they cut the size of the land parcels in half. And a really critical decision that they made is that they decided to randomly distribute land parcels and that effectively fractured really important social relations that would allow for things like household security and childcare, Honduras, East working class neighborhoods, women rely on other women to take care of their children so they can go to work. Men rely on other men to help them confront potential gang members or, or, or people who might be violent against them. And these decisions by the municipality effectively fractured all of these incredibly important social networks that they were laden with emotions like trust. They were really important for creating community well-being. And in addition to that, the local municipalities uh, effectively politically decapitated uh, the, the disaster survivor movement because they denied the most proactive leaders land. Um, and so they engaged in this act of divide and conquer. So it's in that moment in early 1999 that the disaster survivors, the leadership uh, decides that they are going to secede from Limón de la Cerca and that they're going to go to this other community uh, only 200 meters away down the Panamá Highway and, and create their own community. So what happens then is that there is a split. We, we go from 22 different neighborhoods with a variety of communities to either becoming one collective to now becoming two through the process of disaster, uh, in, in through the process through what I call the politically mediated process of, of disaster. And again, that came not from measuring children's bodies, that came from talking to people. And also collecting documents, trying try to, try to ascertain as best as I could what had happened um, in, in what were the stakes and what were the variables. And this is a narrative that emerged from that. Um, so one of the things that was really interesting from this is that, and I think it's particularly important now, is that this, 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 this narrative, this micro history of community relocation that emerged um, stood in radical contradiction to the way that some community psychologists theorize community resilience. Community resilience in the field of community psychology is often thought of as being the, the properties and capacities of a community to, uh, to, to recover in the aftermath of a shock. And sometimes uh, the argument is made that social capital is extremely important, that levels of social capital, intercommunity social capital can be incredibly important for, for predicting how that community will recover. 
one of the one of the things that the data, this ethnographic data uh, presented, the challenge that it presented is that number one, the the, the model of community resilience of of, commu of community psychology upholds the idea that there is a community that exists that is well delimited that exists before the disaster that it then takes a shock and then that community rebounds in the aftermath. But what, what the this ethnographic case study showed was that community itself is an emergent entity over the course of disaster. Mm -hmm. so, so community itself changes over the course of disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, additionally, one of, the things, one of the things that I found really troubling about those definitions of resilience is that they put all the responsibility for the success of a community on, on the internal qualities of a community and completely ignore other extra community factors like the NGOs, like Samaritans First, that, that knowingly built houses that were falling apart and were killing people. Uh, like the US Agency for International Development that gave Samaritans first a significant amount of American taxpayer money to build houses that were falling apart and were killing people. Uh, like the local government that, that, that effectively fractured and, and effectively denied one community of its leaders, relegating it uh, and condemning it to these conditions of violence and, and marginalization. So, so that was one of the, the big things that came out of this work. One of the big things that came out of this work that, that can only come from doing the ethnography um, that, that challenged these existing models of community resilience, right? That, that community psychology models of community resilience rely on definitions of community that do not bear out in the, anthrop in the ethnographic record. The fact that communities are emerging things and the communities, they change over time um, and, um, especially in the context of disasters, and that they're, they're, the, 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 the capacity is, is also greatly influenced by extra community elements like national governments, like political culture, all these things. So to a certain extent, community psychology literature depoliticized um, and, and took out concerns and issues about power when thinking about why some communities managed to recover and not afterwards. Uh, if you actually get the microhistory of Lumanda Seca, you realize that it's, it, that it's not because it lacked, uh, you know, social capital. That social capital was decapitated. It was taken away. It, it was this political process linked to a history of political culture that uh, that involves an understanding of of the of again the history of political culture in Honduras. It has to do with both colonialism and U.S. imperialism, the effects of the Cold War, and the the, the fact that uh, the person in charge of the primary NGO assisting was uh, again an ultra right wing. American political operative with dubious ties to, uh, to, to hit squads and, and paramilitary groups within the country. Um, so, you know, that was one of the big things. So well, coming back from field work, I just knew that I couldn't just go, I couldn't just ignore all that, all those narratives and all those histories that to understand why these two communities were so different, um, the, the nutrition epidemiological analysis couldn't answer that for me. Uh, then, then the, I'm glad that I did the surveys because had I not done those surveys, I would not have been able to to understand where people had come from and mm -hmm. to dispute these mm -hmm. other representations. And, and those representations that that Samaritan's Purse uh, program managers gave me fit perfectly within community psychology definitions of resilience because mm -hmm. they would have said, oh, well, that community before the disaster had low social capital and that other one had high social capital. So social capital is the answer, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not saying that the relationships among, you know, some people define social capital as relationships among people they can then leverage to accomplish a particular communal end. Um, and, you know, but, but, but uh, and I'm not saying that, that those relationships aren't incredibly important, but, but we have to understand that those relationships are not fully self-making of the community itself, right? The communities have fuzzy boundaries 
that they are emergent, that they're changing, and they exist in what I call politically and, epistemi and epistemically mediated relationships to broader institutions and forces uh, that must be taken into account if we really want to understand why some communities managed to recover or not in the aftermath of disaster. Mm -hmm. um, and that got me interested also in this whole question of boxes because I began to realize that uh, the, the project was quite positivist in its, in its, in its inception, in its conceptualization. And unfortunately, the National Science Foundation loves this crap. You know, they think it's highly scientific, but it's highly also highly unanthropological. Um, because I realized that uh, that nutritional epidemiology itself was one of these cosmologies, was one, one of these boxes, was one of these epistemologies that, although helpful in certain regards, was also tremendously limited in others. Um, because it, it wouldn't acknowledge its own blind spots, blind sides, right? So one of the things that I also became interested in was, was to begin to, to, to ask questions about epistemology and knowledge making, which I think when you start asking those questions in anthropology, you, you, you actually become an anthropological thinker, right? I always argue when I always tell my students, you think anthropologically is to think epistemically uh, or epistemologically. Uh, it, it's in thinking about not just there being one modernist episteme, but of a possibility of various epistemes of different forms of knowing and doing. Mm -hmm. It's to think historically and to think systemically, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so, so I, I quickly began to realize that uh, that nutritional epidemiology itself was its own epistemological box. That, although helpful with some things, I mean, I, I absolutely, you know, of course, right now in the middle of, of the pandemic, I, I, I think, of, you know, I'm not, I'm not critiquing. Uh, I'm not saying that this form of knowledge shouldn't exist, but I'm just trying to figure out. What, 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 what does it mean to think anthropologically about this, right? And, and I think thinking anthropologically is also thinking reflexively, right? Recognizing that all categories of knowing, uh, whether it's the, the measure of a child's growth or a narrative uh, is, is contingent and subjective and has its own history. Um, and it's certainly informative and can help you think, but it's not the absolute singular way of describing the world and understanding the world. But, but built in within our project, there was, I think, a very positivist perspective. So uh, one of the things I became interested in was about knowledge-making systems. And so I, I, was, I was interested in, in understanding one, one of the questions that I had. And I, of course, I was also very naive because you know, it's the, one of the things that I got to realize 20, uh, over the 20 years of going to conferences and talking about this case study and doing other work is that uh, this, this case was not unique. Uh, it was actually pretty much the norm when, when it came to housing relocation programs in post-disaster context, especially in places like Latin America. Uh, and not, not just Latin America, Turkey, uh, you know, all, all over the world, these things, it seems to be kind of a pattern uh, that this is what, what occurs um, in, in disaster recovery context. So, so I was interested, I was asking myself the question, okay, so does the United States Agency for International Development know what's happening in this disaster community where, where, where American tax dollars are being paid to build homes that are getting people killed? Um, if they do, what, what are they making of it? Uh, are, they, are, are they learning from this? Are, are they changing any of their means of operation? Um, so, so that became a question that I asked and, and it became a very fruitful one in terms of trying, coming to understand the, the, the knowledge making mechanisms uh, of, of humanitarianism and, and of disaster relief that as getting back to this whole idea of silencing voices, effectively with silencing the voices of disaster survivors and limiting the ways in which we could know about disaster recovery. One of the ways in which I did this was um, because I had a Fulbright, part of my field work, you know, as an anthropologist, you're always working. And part of my field work involved getting an invitation from the ambassador of the United States to go to the ambassador's house in Tegucigalpa for the Christmas dinner. So I went and, and I was doing research when I went. Um, 
And at the, at the dinner, I got to meet all kinds of folks who work for the US State Department. And I got to meet someone who worked for the United States Agency for International Development. And when that person asked me uh, what I was doing in Honduras, I began to explain that I was doing a project on housing reconstruction programs and nutritional epidemiology and all this stuff. And they said, oh, really, where are you working? And I said, well, I'm working in Southern Honduras in Choloteca, Limón de la Cerca. And they said, well, that's really interesting because we just had an evaluation team go down there and do an evaluation of the reconstruction projects. And I thought, wow, that's fantastic. That I, I, I want to see that evaluation. Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 that evaluation. I want you to see, I didn't tell them this, but I, what I was thinking was, I want you to see what variables, in what ways are you knowing, are you making knowledge about this? So, so I, I agreed to a trade. I had written um, a, a very early draft of this microhistory that I just gave you for a paper that I was going to present at the Society for Applied Anthropology annual meeting that was going to be held in Merida in Yucatan in Mexico. Or I think it had already been held. It had already been held, I think. Yeah, it had already been held. <laughs> And it talked about houses falling apart, killing people, uh, you know, very rudimentary paper, but just kind of documentary in a way. Um, and it talked about local politics uh, and the role of, of politics uh, in disaster recovery aid or its failures. And so we traded. And, and this person uh, forwarded my, my paper to the, the national chief of housing of USAID. And the paper was not well received. Um, I got a very stern email from 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 you, from from the director of, of national housing. Um, the gist of the message that I got was, "You better not be telling tall tales." So what I did was that I, I went to the houses where people had died and I collected death certificates and hospital records and I sent them to USAID and I said, "These are the people who I know have died because of the houses that were built by with with our money." Mm -hmm. um, and some of these people were the sole breadwinner for these households, and these households are now in extreme poverty, and we owe it to them to pay them reparations. I don't think they were ever paid reparations, but the, he assured me that they would send an evaluation team to make sure that the houses were properly, you know, attached. Blah blah. But he also questioned whether, you know, he assured me that the mayor that I had, whose corruption I had spoken about, his opinion I had talked about, that he had personal, he was a personal acquaintance of the mayor and the mayor was a person of upright moral character. And he could not believe that the mayor would be such a person, right? Um, but, one of, but one of the interesting things was that when I, when I finally got the evaluation and I opened it, there was no narrative, there was no micro history. The, the disaster survivors themselves didn't have a voice in it. The, the, the means through which USAID was making knowledge about disaster recovery was, a, was, a, was one of fiscal accounting. Did you spend the money on time on what you said you were going to spend it on? And if you did so, uh, reconstruction was said to be moving accordin accordingly. Now, of course, I do recognize that, uh, that there is theft and siphoning and corruption, but, but there was still theft and siphoning and corruption despite these mechanisms of knowledge making. There were all kinds of, of cases in which disaster survivors not just spoke about, but pointed to specific pointed to specific instances of, of the, the theft uh, of recovery resources and, and of uh, you know, corruption on the part of uh, either the local mayor or um, architects or staff of Samaritans first. So in the end, uh, but but one of the so one of the interesting things was that when I as I interviewed people from USAID. Uh, on one occasion, I got to interview uh, members of a USAID team uh, and, and they asked me, well, what do you think about Limonde de la And I said, well, things are a mess here. And I began to talk about the, the lack of environmental and social uh, relevance of the aid that had been given. And I asked them, did USAID, did, did Samaritan Spurs USAID not, the USAID not require Samaritan Spurs to do some kind of feasibility study or, or cultural sensitivity study? And, What's really fascinating was that this USAID person told me, well, you know, 
we wanted to include all these cultural considerations in the projects, but ultimately our major challenge became spending the money on time. And to this day, when, when I talk to State Department folks, I, I teach courses for the State Department for people who are gonna be future diplomats and who are gonna be doing uh, policy advising. Uh, to this day, that there's a problem with the US government, right? So um, that again, there, there is so much emphasis on the budget uh, and spending the money on time that it comes to supersede all other kinds of concerns uh, to the point that it, that it allows for grossly inappropriate uh, and harmful uh, humanitarian aid projects to go unchecked. This is not less impressive as your own personal history and how you have come to US and your first projects. And if I fast forward now to today, how this experience and what you have learned during this project influenced what you are doing today? What kind of project are you working on today? Yeah, no, great question. So um, one of the projects that I'm still working on, which has been a really wonderful opportunity, eye-opening um, and also frustrating and heartbreaking at times, um, is that because I, when I actually sat down to write articles, I began to, I, I wrote a critique of, definitions of resilience from the perspective of community psychology. So I've taken a great interest in resilience, particularly because there's been a discursive explosion over resilience, hence my invitation to mm-hmm. present on the resilience group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I began to write about the concept of resilience. I, 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 I decided that that was one of the key ways that my work can make an intervention, right? And to show uh, that, you know, I don't have a problem with the term resilience itself. If you know, if, if resilience is about trying to understand, like I was trying to understand, why did one community recover and the other one not? And this is a fundamental concern of disaster recovery research. The, the problem with resilience is who gets to define it and how, and the, what kinds of assumptions do we make about communities, about people, about power, or how mm-hmm. we politicize those definitions. Mm-hmm. And, and I am afraid that many definitions of community resilience attempt to depoliticize, or is fundamentally a, a, a process full of power relations and inequities, which is disaster risk making, vulnerability, and disaster recovery or mitigation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had the fortune of being invited by Antoinette Jackson, who is an anthropologist. She's the chair of the Department of Anthropology at the University of South Florida. And she has worked in the US Virgin Islands for a long time. Mm-hmm. And two wonderful faculty from that university who are not anthropologists or social scientists, engineers and biologists, Greg Wanell and, and Kim Waddell. Um, received a grant or received a contract from the Virgin Islands Territorial Emergency Management Agency and FEMA to help draft the territory's five-year hazard mitigation and community resilience plan. So they asked um, Antoinette and I uh, to come on board to help draft the social part of that. And that has involved doing substantial field work too, uh, which again, we, you know, some people, sometimes people talk about anthropology being about inductive reasoning, right? We go from the particular to the general, but it's given me a, a, a chance to further refine and understand many of the nuances in a different context, uh, but mm-hmm. also understanding these, the, the power relations, you know, a very different context, right? In the US Virgin Islands, where it's a territory that was self Danish, uh, where people were brought to live under conditions of slavery, mm-hmm. uh, where there are certain parts of that population that have forever been held in conditions of marginalization, mm-hmm. um, but coming to not necessarily, you know, I'm, I'm not out to prove that my understanding of resilience is right, but to use my insights on resilience from Honduras uh, to ask questions that I think might be relevant and see where those lead for how we think about resilience 
what are, you know, what's at stake in the ways that different actors might define it and operationalize it, and also to come to document the experiences and the voices of people who are uh, living in the front lines of anthropogenic climate change. The U.S. Virgin Islands were hit by both Hurricane uh, Maria um, and Irma in, in 2017, um, and you know they're highly exposed uh, out there in the Caribbean, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So, but. The, in the, the, the experience, I mean, you know, it's been a trajectory over the course of my life, right? Um, the experiences in Honduras made me completely rethink and almost revive, you know, um, the overwhelmingly positivist and scientific approach towards anthropology at the University of Florida had killed or, or threatened to really stifle a, a, a lot of my concern with public anthropology and advocacy. And it was my experience and my willingness in my experience in my, because it's very possible for a student, for a graduate student to go to a research site to who have transformative data present itself to them and for them to simply say, well, I'm not gonna stick to my methodology. I'm not gonna let all that in, right? And to me, that's the most boring type of field work you can do, mm -hmm. right? Because I think you should be going out to, you know, it's good to have a plan, it's good to have a proposal. You should still carry out your method. But you're looking for those moments of ethnographic surprise. You're looking for the things, you know, I hate to quote Donald Rumsfeld, right? But you're looking for the unknown unknowns, right? Not for the non-known unknowns, right? You're looking for the things that you had no idea were going on. Um, and, and I think that your original research proposal is just an excuse to get you there mm -hmm. so that you can actually get a sense of what's going on on the ground and what's relevant to the people that you're working with. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not going to say that people weren't concerned about the, the nutritional status of their children, but, but they knew their children were malnourished. Uh, and, and that was a critical moment for me of field work. When, when, when a child came out uh, underweight or under height, we would go give parents a report of the of their C scores and the CDC's uh, nutritional, uh, you know, calculator. And parents would look at me and be like, "You come and tell me what I already know that my child is malnourished, right?" And what was really important to those people was to address again these conditions of of, of political imposition, political impunity, immunity, uh, political culture. Um, uh, of again these, these these dimensions of power in in the undermining of their of their community resilience. That's that's what mattered to them. That's the story they wanted told, mm -hmm. and and I consider it an incredibly important duty to to continue to tell that story. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, but coming out, one of the, I think one of the big lessons from from and again, it, I think most anthropologists, uh, you know, I hate I like beating up on the University of Florida. They deserve it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dog that bites the hand that feeds it, you know. Um, there were all kinds of anthropologies that were not being taught at the University of Florida that would have, that would have helped me think about the case study. Uh, for example, the anthropology of space in place, the, the, the work of Seth Lowe, right, mm -hmm. uh, the, the work of Paul Rabinow. Um, it became eventually, after the fact, um, extremely important for me coming to understand the epistemological perspectives through which, and again, it's the fact that sometimes people do things without knowing the history of why they're doing things, right? So when, when I look at the, the urban layout for Limon de la Cerca, it is something straight out of French modern urbanism, right? Mm -hmm. and, and what's the cultural history? Why, why did these architects think that, that that was the way to recover these people? In, in fact, one of the fundamental assumptions of modern urbanism is that people, human beings who are put in highly regimented spaces, they will become highly regimented normative subjects. But 
that didn't happen. And we already knew that from the work of James C. Scott, from the work of James Holston, the fact that similar attempts uh, at, at grand master planning of urban areas like Brasilia had completely fallen apart. And this was just a micro case of it, right? Uh, and it's the fact that there were other, all other kinds of anthropology, anthropology of space and place, anthropology of science and technology mm -hmm. uh, that, that eventually, and that I had to seek out on my own uh, with the help of one fantastic, we had one faculty member at the University of Florida at the time who was a saving grace and her name was Stacy Langwick, who is now at Cornell University. Who, who was hired not necessarily not through the grace of the Department of Anthropology, but through um, African studies, um, who brought post-structural thoughts um, in anthropology, science, and technology, and feminism uh, to our campus. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, that that impetus didn't come from the Department of Anthropology. Mm -hmm. uh, to this day, and, you know. Feel free to cut this out if you think I'm talking too much trash. But to this day, I, I think of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Florida as being a very patriarchal, positivist, um, white one. Mm -hmm. So, so if, yeah. I, if I may ask you then the last question on that exactly point, what would you say to students who are studying anthropology of disaster and would like to become anthropologists in the future from all the experience you have gone yourself and all the knowledge that you have acquired on the way, what would you tell them to help them out a little bit in their journey? I think what I what I said is really important. Unfortunately, some students are um, sometimes very closely managed by their advisors. Mm -hmm. Some advisors have this idea that, and, and I don't think that's a majority of anthropology, but this happened a lot at UF, right? That, that you have your mm -hmm. methodology and it's very neatly planned out. And then you go and you, carry out the methodology and then you get your data and you come back and you just write it up um, and, and you don't let other things in. And I would say, and, you know, of course there's a danger to this, right? You don't want to just follow every single clue that you get while you're doing field work, but don't be closed off. Like I said, to those moments of ethnographic surprise. Like they, 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 when you really push anthropological knowledge forward is when you, when you run into that, which you absolutely did not expect. Um, and it, it, and, and, and you feel that the literature that you've read so far has really not necessarily engaged or addressed those issues, right? Um, mm -hmm. so, so be open when you're in the field, be open to new ideas, be open to new problems. Um, you should always carry out the methodology that you agreed to conduct, because that's a good anchor. You will always have that data. And it's the fact that that data can lend itself to a variety of analyses, right? Mm -hmm. but, but also be reflexive about that data, right? And, and I think most, Anthropologists notice, but there are certain elements of anthropology, and I just had the particular life circumstance of ending at a university that was, that was operating in this way. But I, I don't think UF is the only one. I don't think it represents the majority of the field of anthropology, but I think those tendencies are still there, particularly in, in applied anthropology. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, be open to that. Um, you know, read read diverse things, right? Yes. Uh, and Reach. don't listen to your supervisors. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, well, and that's the thing. And I think that goes back to me being somewhat disempowered. There are there are some people who I look to today and I, and I wish, wow, I wish they had been my mentor. Right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are not all, not all, yeah, you should be in, you, you, I would hope that you would have a supervisor who you would have a collegial relationship with who would also trust you. Uh, I think it's, I think trust is an incredibly important emotion and feeling. As a matter of fact, my book ended up being about emotions and disaster recovery, about affect. We didn't even get into that topic. Mm. Uh, that would be another huge tangent. Um, I think trust is an incredibly important uh, 
emotion um, trust between you and the people that you do research with um, and between faculty and students. Um, and, and, and I love it when students challenge me because they, you know, they, they, they're usually more in tune with emerging ways of thinking. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, your, your report that you will have with your advisor, it varies tremendously by which advisor you have, right? And the kind mm -hmm. of trust that you have with them and the trust they have with you. Mm -hmm. And don't be afraid. Again, listen to your gut. If your gut tells you something's yeah. wrong, uh, then maybe you want to look for another advisor or maybe you want to look for another university. <laughs> I didn't listen to my gut and it all worked out in the end just fine. But I remember having certain moments early on in grad school when, when I just thought something's not right here. And it was, it was the positivism. It was, and, um, and it was, it was a very, forgive me for saying white patriarchal waste of thinking about people and culture and research. Uh, but I was too disempowered to, to trust that gut or to even on, to even, you know, I could feel the gut feeling, but I couldn't understand what it was telling me at the time. So it might take time also to start learning how we can listen to our gut feeling. Thank you so much, Roberto. I would like to remind to our listeners that our precious guest today was Roberto Barrios, a professor of anthropology at uh, the University of New Orleans in the United States, and Doris Samurai Stone, chair for Latin American Studies. And if you'd like to know more about a disaster or crisis in general, you can visit our website. It's www.humanitarianstudies.no. And thank you for listening. Bye.